The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Smith Micro Software, makers of Stuff It Deluxe, designed to move files simply and securely wherever customers want them to go, for Mac and PC, online at stuffit.com. And Ask Metafilter, thousands of life's little questions answered, online at ask.metafilter.com. Hi, I'm Julia from San Francisco. I'm Scott from Seattle. I'm Art from Portland, Oregon. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. For more than 30 years, John Waters has been pushing the boundaries of taste. With his films that feature some bizarre and terrifying and super gross and just super distasteful stuff, with his public appearances and public persona, uh, basically in every possible way he can. And of course, what's so wonderful about John Waters is that every time he does it, it's basically delightful. His new book is called Role Models. It's about some of the folks that he admires most in the world. In true John Waters fashion, their number include a lesbian stripper, a fashion designer, and a murderer. Oh, yes, and also Johnny Mathis. Look at me, I'm as helpless as a kitten up a tree. John Waters, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America, I should say. Well, thank you for having me again. So you really open the book with, uh, with a shot across the bow, um, at least in the context of a book about role models by John Waters, uh, by writing about Johnny Mathis, who's just about the sort of, I mean, outside of, outside of maybe Pat Boone, just about the sort of sweetest, middle-of-the-roadest guy in existence, and he doesn't even have the uh, sort of possibly slightly racist baggage of Pat Boone. Well, I'll, I, I think that Johnny Mathis, yes, as I joke in a way, was the is the opposite of myself in many ways. But I'm I'm thrilled. He just uh, his office called me the other day. I'm going to see him again in Baltimore when he's he's appearing with his new country album. So um, maybe I've inspired him. But uh, I, I think Johnny Mathis always. I, I beg to differ. Pat Boone is certainly not a role model to me. Um, but Johnny Mathis was because um, when you talk about Profiles in Courage, you said earlier, that could be the name of this book because everybody in it has had courage to either survive great, great success like Johnny Mathis did from the day he began. He, he had success immediately. But yet he's never gone crazy. He's never turned into a jerk. He still can really sing. It's not an oldies act. And uh, that is kind of a different kind of courage than say, Leslie Van Houten, one of the Manson women at one time, who has um, spent 40 years in prison and I believe is, is totally rehabilitated and has paid her price. Um, so they're very different kinds of courage that sometimes you have to overcome terrible things or sometimes great things. Sometimes great things are equally hard to survive. 
did you write about Johnny Mathis to um, to contrast yourself with him? I mean, you you say that you're his complete opposite, but you seem to have you you seem to be very sympathetic. Uh, I I wrote about Johnny Mathis because when people buy a book by John Waters, they expect to be surprised, and I think I surprised <laughs> him in the way they expect in the chapter about outsider pornographers. Or, but I think. Probably the biggest surprise in the book was how much I love Johnny Mathis because I don't think anybody would have predicted that. And when I went around the country promoting this book in the beginning, every radio station I did when I would come on, they would play one of Johnny Mathis's songs. So um, I, I really do like Johnny Mathis. It was the first makeout party I ever went to. Who forgets that? Who isn't impressed by that? Uh, it was the, one of the first 45 records I ever bought. And um, I, I like him without any irony. I, I don't think you need any irony to like Johnny Mathis. But yet, he differs from me politically. He differs from me. Uh, he lives a much quieter life. I'm the opposite. I go to openings all the time. I do interviews all the time. I mean, I'm overexposed, and he's underexposed. And he's way more famous than I am and way more successful. And um, the one thing about Johnny Mathis that's so great, he never appears to be trying too hard. When you spent all this time considering him, uh did it make you think about the choices that you've made in your life in a different way or, or see them in a new light? No, because we became our, about our careers in a very, very different way. Um, I, I never could have done it the way Johnny Mathis did it. Um, I was starting out making underground movies. There was no normal mainstream way to do that. Um, but yet Johnny Mathis had always wanted to be a jazz singer. And um, his, his agent, as he tells me in the book, said, don't go into jazz. There's no money into that. And he, to this day, I think, think wishes he had done more jazz so um, but now he's doing country who knows i'm waiting for johnny mathis's hip-hop album <laughs> um another musical hero that you talk to in the book is little richard um i don't think anyone would ever accuse little richard of being milk toast before we get into talking about you meeting him um, what did he mean to you as a kid? Well, Little Richard scared my grandmother when I was eight years old, when I was one of the <laughs> first records I ever shoplifted. Um, I don't feel bad about shoplifting those records because I've paid, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 each to put them in the soundtracks of my movies 40 years later. <laughs> so they got their money back. Uh, but when I had the record Lucille and I took it to my grandmother's and I played it and the antiques rattled and I saw the most bewildered look on her face because here was in 1956 everything she feared. A flamboyant gay black man was in her house screaming with uh, her grandchild supporting him. Uh, so I, I think uh, he was a really early influence. I think to be a role model, it has to have lasted a long time. There's no such thing as an overnight role model. Uh, a role model has to stay in your life for a long time and influence you. So Little Richard, to me, was way ahead of his time. Um, he said in the interview, I invented gay. I don't know about that. Um, because <laughs> then he says he, he isn't sometimes. So he goes back and forth between the religious community and um, the flamboyant rock and roll king that he really is. I'm a huge fan of Little Richard still, even though the interview with him, which was a while ago, did not go very well. Sometimes you shouldn't meet your role models, and sometimes you should, but you don't get to predict that till it's too late. Do you remember the first time that you, uh, I mean, <laughs> Little Richard's records are outrageous and ridiculous enough, um, particularly in the contest of the mid-1950s? I don't think they're ridiculous. I think they're 
it almost was the invention of rock and roll when he was doing uh, working in a Greyhound bus station washing dishes and he wrote a song uh wap bop loom bop bop boom which was about the sound of the dishes that's not that's not that's opera to me that that's the invention of a new sound sure i know that's that's the only context in which i mean that it's ridiculous i mean it's even as even as big as Jerry Lee Lewis was, he never was as huge and outrageous as Little Richard was. No, but Jerry Lee Lewis was scary in a different way when he would play the <laughs> piano and that hair would fall down a foot long in the front. And then he married his, what, 13-year-old cousin? That always has an edge to it. <laughs> he seemed like he could get drunk and stab you. Yeah, but most rock and roll people can do that. <laughs> I mean, that, that's old, you know, that's not that outstanding in, in rock and roll. Certainly in the punk rock days, they all wanted to do that. The book is so much about courage, and I can't imagine someone more courageous than Little Richard being as uh, outre as he was in, in the mid-1950s. I think he taught a, a good lesson, though. If you scare people enough, they don't question your sexuality. <laughs> Uh, what what kind of influence did did that have on you as a as a kid and as an adolescent to to see this guy who was who was so huge and also just so outrageous not just in terms of his sexuality but in basically every yes. I mean he was outrageously religious at one point didn't he throw a hundred thousand dollars worth of jewelry in an ocean or he something might like have. that he as might well have. he was torn back and forth a lot but then he called himself the bronze liberace I love that too. Uh, <laughs> Little Richard gave me, as did Tennessee Williams, who I read about a book, a lot of people when I was very young, the courage to not care that I didn't fit in and to realize with Tennessee Williams, hey, there was bohemia. There was another world. With Little Richard, there's this insane world of rock and roll where whites and blacks are mixing. It was completely gave me courage to not care that I didn't like Ike, that I didn't want to wear a gray flannel suit, that I didn't want to be like every person in my class. And I never did. And when I was and I didn't have a horrible childhood where I was hassled or anything because always, especially in high school, the people that would have beaten me up didn't because they realized I hated authority even more than they did. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by VG Kids, printers of T-shirts and other merchandise for touring bands, radio stations, websites, festivals, derby girls, record labels, national brands, and all the rabble-rousers, hackers, and entrepreneurs in between. Online at VGKids.com. The Sound of Young America is returning to WNYC and the Jerome L. Green Performance Space on October 22, 2010. Join us for a night of comedy, music, and interviews at the beautiful new performance studio at WNYC. Find out more information about the lineup and ticket information as it becomes available online at MaximumFun.org. Laugh Night is back. If you're in Southern California, join us for The Sound of Young America presents Laugh Night at ArtShare Los Angeles. Our second Laugh Night features stand-up comedy from a variety of comics recording their sets for The Sound of Young America. And the lineup includes comedy greats like Dana Gould and Maria Bamford, among others. Our second Laugh Night is Thursday, September 30th at ArtShare in downtown Los Angeles. You can find out more information and buy tickets online at MaximumFun.org. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the brilliant provocateur John Waters. Among his many films are Hairspray and Crybaby. 
He's now the author of a book called Role Models about some of the people he has most admired. Did you have an idea when you were when you were a teenager and young adult of the future of like what you wanted to be, how you how you wanted to be in the world or yeah. were you just sort of I was flailing, but not really because when I was young, my parents took me to the Howdy Duty show and I saw that it was a all a lie and I wanted to be on Howdy Duty so I started giving puppet shows and I had a full career as a puppeteer for children's birthday parties when I was 10 years old and sometimes probably at the height of my career I did two or three a week for $25 a show which was really a lot of money in the 50s so then I started making underground movies and um, I, I no one said they were good for 10 years uh, but in those <laughs> days the bad reviews could help in a way and uh, so I always was in show business since I was 10 years old that's why I always joke I should have quit school in grade school because I knew what I wanted to do. You go to school to figure out what it is you want to do. Um, I always knew that I would be in show business somehow. Did you, when, when you started making underground movies, did you see yourself as um, obviously the the subject matter uh, the subject matter of those films was not wildly dissimilar to the subject matter of the films that you made later, and that they were, you know, in outrageously bad taste. Um, did you see yourself as making that choice um, to alienate people or as following some kind of internal muse that you had to follow? Because there's a big difference between, you know, being in show business, doing a children's puppet show, um, which is something that could develop into being Johnny Mathis and... Um, <laughs> Not my you know, puppet shows. I started putting <laughs> fake blood in them, and the parents started stopped hiring me. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I I don't know. It, it wasn't some inner thing. It was just my interests were always not what others were looking for, but actually. Always people responded to them. We made movies for hippies that were about violence, and it was the the one thing you definitely couldn't do with hippies. But they laughed <laughs> because they knew I was being making a joke on what's now called political correctness, even though I believe my movies are politically correct. I guess that was hippie correctness that we were making fun of. So um, I think my audience has always been in on the joke. And in the early days, the people that rose to the bait helped me because they were censors. Today, that doesn't happen because the worst thing you can fight is a liberal censor. Um, and, and they're the kind – that's the Motion Picture Association of America that is actually gives you a rating that they say very fairly, um, 17 and up. That means any college student should see it, and that should be fair. The problem is, yes, any college student can see it if – newspapers advertise it, or if theater chains would play them, but they don't. So they get off being censored. They get off the the sort of very unfashionable way of being called a censor, but yet they're doing that. And that's much, much harder to fight than um, the Legion of Decency that gave you a condemned rating, which you'd put right in the ads. You write very, um, very movingly in the book about your friend Leslie Van Houten, who... Um, was a, a member of the Manson family and is is still in in prison for uh, being party to a, a murder. Two murders. And what I thought was one of the things that I thought was most interesting about how you wrote about it was 
that you considered your own countercultural lifestyle um, at the time and sort of the the relationship between um, the life that she was living and the life that you were living and, and how, while they were markedly different, um, they weren't wildly no, the, different. No, the thing was we were doing all, every antisocial idea that ever came through my mind on film and making fun of it. Um, they were under the influence of a madman pimp who brainwashed them and they did it for real. Um, so it was a big difference, but um, I, I understood how it could have happened. And I, I have great sympathy for someone, not that she went to jail. She should have gone to jail. She did a terrible, terrible thing. And uh, she, But if she, it was not her idea. She was not the force behind it. She was a 17-year-old girl that met probably the most notorious madman of our century, and, uh, and, and did what he told her to do. Um, stupid, yes, stupid, insane. She looks back on it with incredible guilt and mortification and, and great sorrow of what she did, not only, especially to the family of, of the victims, but also to society itself, how, how it scared people, how it did accomplish what Manson wanted to scare the world. But as she looks back on it today after 40 years in jail, and God knows nobody can say 40 years is not anything, um, she speaks with great, um, great, I think, maturity about her her reasoning and also doesn't let herself off. She doesn't just say, Manson made me do it or I was on LSD because that's too easy. She said, um, I made Manson a leader and no one can have a cult if he doesn't have followers. And I shouldn't have taken those drugs to that extent that I did. So uh, she doesn't let herself off easily. And I don't think I do in the book either. I, I went through every parole hearing and printed the most devastating things, say, the relatives say, against her release. And I still believe, if you read it all, that I made a very good argument f- to give her another chance, which I do believe she deserves. And since the book came out, she was again turned down for three more years very recently. There's a point where um, you're talking about uh, your gang's uh, LSD-fueled madnesses, um, and you sort of toss off in half a sentence that you realize, oh, I guess I was the leader of that. Um, I was, but my followers said no. Mink stole, I asked her to set her hair on fire for Pink Flamingos, and what was I thinking about? I, I don't know, but <laughs> I was on LSD. What do I know? But she said no. Um, I asked Cookie Muller to smash in a television while it was on on film. She said no. Uh, I said okay. I didn't make them do it. So um, we never, I don't think, would have done real violence. But Leslie Van Houten was way more of a hippie than we ever were. She had never had a violent night in her life before and has never had a violent night in her life afterwards. And she's been in prison for 40 years, which is a almost a lab for violence and never once has had any violence in her life ever. It seems like one of the themes in the book, and and forgive me if this is an underformed question, is the relationship between that kind of rebellion and outrageousness in, in art and performance and the way that that can touch real life um and and I wonder if that's something you thought about as as you were writing the book and and particularly as um as your 
own art has become has continued over the years to become more and more about uh, you as a performer and you as something that you say that you, you wanted to be when you were a kid, which is essentially kind of a, a caricature of yourself. <laughs> well, I started that because I had no way to advertise my films. And so Divine and I, who nobody had heard either one of us, we would make appearances. So we became kind of a caricature of an insane underground filmmaker who praised art movies and nudist camp movies in the same breath, and Divine, who was Jane Mansfield and Godzilla, put together to scare hippies. That's how we started, and it worked. So um, I'm glad I did, because today I make a lot of my living by doing my one-man show, This Filthy World. I have a Christmas show I do called The John Waters Christmas. Same as Johnny Mathis. He has one, too. (laughs) Very different act. (laughs) And... uh, No, it's just part of how I make my living. I actually really am a writer. That is what I've written every movie. I've written all my books. I've written, I think, up my photography through narration of writing. Everything I do is really a writer. And so um, to me, I'm lucky because I can have, um, if I can't get a movie made this year, I'll write a book. I can't get a book made, I'll do this. I'll do a TV show. So um, the fact that I have... um, become that public person is just how to make my living and and it comes in handy when during the recession uh, a lot of the book is about uh artists that you admire be it uh be they writers or um you know uh Ray Kawakubo who was the uh, the founder of Comme de Garçon or um visual artists like Cy Twombly um what do you most enjoy about a a work of art. What do you look for? What what really speaks to you? Well, I like that it at first makes me angry, and um, because contemporary art's job is to wreck things and to wreck what you think was good, and uh, so uh, Ileana Sutherman, who had a beautiful collection of modern art, said something about they asked her how she built it, and she said, "I just bought what I didn't like." And I know what she meant. The things that first make you anger are the ones you can't get out of your mind. Um, The stupidest thing ever is when people say, my kid can do this. I thought, well, why didn't he stupid? It just sold for a million dollars. You're the moron. (laughs) Not the person who likes it. (laughs) So I never understood that. Art is a magic trick, and, and it's for, I, I love it that it's for the elite. It's a secret way to see things. I'm all for that. It's like joining a biker club. Do things actually, I mean, do you actually get angry at art? I have a hard time imagining you fuming over something. Not angry. as an initial but, reaction. But at the first thing you thought, oh my God, look at this. I mean, Mike Kelly did these great paintings, but they're just a bad wall-to-wall carpeting. <laughs> and <they're, laughs> I love it. And I, I went to his show this year in a very fancy Uptown New York Gallery, and it was work he did in the 80s, I believe, and it was just filthy um, blankets from thrift shops with dirty stuffed animals sitting on them, and they're very powerful, I think. I think they're so ugly and so beautiful, but I asked, there were only five of them, and and the guy said, well, there's only two for sale, the others are already sold, and I said, how much? And they said, 1.5 million, and I thought, isn't that great? Isn't that the (laughs) ultimate magic trick? And I know how angry that would make some people, but I wish I could have said, wrap them both up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, John, thank you so much for taking this time to be on The Sound of Young America. It's it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for having me from old America. (laughs) John Waters, uh, eminently charming and hilarious new book, which also by the way, features extensive descriptions of um, uh, filmed sex acts on our nation's members of our nation's armed forces, is called Role Models. 
That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music is provided by Dan Wally. Our associate producer is Julia Smith. Production director is Nick White. And our intern is Christian.tv.com. Christian's on his way out, so thank you so much for all of your hard work, Christian, and good luck in graduate school. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, and you can email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org, J-E-S-S-E at MaximumFun.org. You're just not allowed to correct my grammar. We'll see you next time, right here on The Sound of Young America. Our thanks to engineer Lawrence Lanahan at WYPR in Baltimore for his help recording John Waters' end of this interview. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. The Sound of Young America is looking for a fall intern. You have to be in the Los Angeles area and be willing to commit to 15 to 20 hours a week here at the Max Fun office. You'll learn all kinds of cool stuff. You can find more information, including information about how to apply, at MaximumFun.org slash internships. MaximumFun.org slash internships. Apply as soon as possible.